Manufacturing Descent since 1996. This is Hell. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, how was your weekend? Uh, I learned this weekend that you can get high enough to see past all the ideological differences between the communists and anarchists. Really? Uh, yeah, but don't do that at a child's birthday party. <laughs> Bad scene, man. So was... Uh, nitrous or pure oxygen pure oxygen involved or any combination thereof no oxygen whatsoever in my <laughs> brain you. anymore my weekend was uh, nearly pain-free i had a little bit of heat exhaustion on uh, saturday because it was so freaking hot and we don't have air conditioning i got heat exhaustion by carrying an air conditioner <laughs> with one arm up a s- three flights of stairs but outside of that i had a great weekend i think you gotta uh, plug it in <laughs> i think so too On today's show, earlier this month, on July 9th, the Supreme Court of the United States made an historic decision on a treaty the U.S. had broken over and over and over and over again ever since it was signed, and in doing so, had to cede the eastern section of the state of Oklahoma, over half of the state, to the Muscogee Creek and Seminole peoples, who they had promised the land to, who they had agreed to give the land to way back in 1866. The land was in exchange for the indigenous people's traditional home east of the Mississippi, which is now the southeastern United States. Natives were forcibly removed from those lands, beginning with a campaign by President Andrew Jackson, ja- Jackson in the 1830s, which would become known as the Trail of Tears, a crime against humanity. With the Supreme Court's 5-4 to four decision, with a majority opinion written by Trump court nominee Neil Gorsuch, of all people, treaties the United States have broken with Native Americans across the country may be reconsidered, re-examined, reopened, and some form of justice may finally be realized by the people whose lands were stolen from them. We'll find out what the decisions of McGirt Mc, sorry, McGirt versus Oklahoma means now and what it could mean for the future of Native peoples from sea to shining sea and beyond when we have the return of writer Julian Brave Noisecat, author of the article, The McGirt Case is a Historic Win for Tribes for Federal Indian Law. This might be the Gorsuch Court, which appeared in the Atlantic. Julian is a member of the Sakwopemk and... Shah Timich Peoples, I can't believe I got both those right, is the Vice President of Policy and Strategy at 
Data for Progress, a multidisciplinary group of experts using state-of-the-art techniques and data science to support progressive activists and causes. You can find out more about Data for Progress at dataforprogress.org. He's also a narrative change director at the Natural History Museum, a fellow at Type Media Center and NDN Collective, an indigenous-led organization dedicated to building indigenous power that you can find out more about at ndncollective.org. This is Julian's second appearance on This Is Hell. He was on back in July of 2017, nearly three years ago to the day, to talk about his writing for the Marshall Project. Law enforcement is still used as a colonial tool in Indian country and the Guardian opinion piece, Indigenous Sovereignty is on the Rise. Can it shape the course of history? You can find out more about Julian at julianbravenoisecat.com. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is honey. In a 2018 Healthline.com article that we will be referencing for several months, just warning everybody, the 23 best hangover foods registered dietitian Lizzie Strait writes, because of its high fructose content, honey may improve hangover symptoms. In fact, it can be between 34.8 and 39.8% fructose, depending on the type. All research on the subject is limited. <laughs> fructose may help rid your body of alcohol more quickly. One study in 50 adults found that honey increased the rate of alcohol elimination by up to 32.4%. Despite its ability to increase the speed at which your body gets rid of alcohol, fructose did not appear to reduce the intensity of hangover symptoms. In another study, nevertheless, eating honey and other foods with fructose should not be ruled out as a possible way to feel better after drinking too much. So that makes this week's hangover cure, honey. It sounds pretty well researched to me. I don't know about why they're downplaying their research on that. Maybe we should just all stop drinking. Uh, Maybe. This is not the media. This is hell. It's time for what has become our weekly Monday roundup of fascism or fascistic tendencies on display by the Trump White House. A few weeks ago, President Trump, frustrated by the media's unwillingness to continue covering daily press conferences about the coronavirus pandemic that had turned into campaign infomercials, Trump launched what we called the Willful Ignorance Campaign Tour in order to rejuvenate his plummeting poll numbers, which actually had him losing this fall's presidential election to Joe Biden. Who knew over 100,000 voters dying from a pandemic would have a negative impact on your bid to be re-elected president? Who knows? It still may not have any impact on the election. The press conferences turned campaign stops were no substitute for Trump's rallies. With press conferences, the president may have to answer questions. He might be asked to explain what he just said. The members of the press may actually not want to hear him at all, instead preferring to hear from the virus experts who actually do know what they're talking about, leaving Trump to play second and sometimes third or fourth fiddle. And Trump does not like sharing the spotlight. So, against the best wishes of his health advisors, Trump got all Hitlery and took his willful ignorance campaign tour to Tulsa, which is now seeing a spike in coronavirus cases. There, Trump dehumanized sections of the population as animals to screaming cheers from pale-faced admirers, and dehumanizing people is a very, very fascist thing to do. And I'm going to do a very fascist thing right now and ask Alex to go turn off the uh, air conditioner. The next stop would be Florida, where he came up with the story of far-left fascists, which is not only a contradictory oxymoron, but is completely made up. Like much of Trump's packaged reality he sells to supporters, 
who want to believe they are the victims of oppression while denying their complicity in the persecution of others. Florida is now suffering from a surge in COVID-19 as well. Next to her stop was Mount Rushmore, which is about as racist of a symbol you can use as your backdrop in the United States, staring out at lands, lands like the ones in eastern Oklahoma that were also stolen from Native Americans by treaty that the U.S. refuses to recognize. Trump seemed to be reaffirming domination over indigenous people and land as if to be proud of genocide. Hey, it worked once for the United States. Why not again? Trump depends on these rallies to energize himself and his base. You know, like Hitler. And a monument to genocide is about the best place you can do that. Then, last week, Trump took a bit of a fascistic breather to commute the sentence of one of his cronies who probably had all sorts of dirt on him. So it wasn't full-blown genocidal Hitler, or the corrupt cronyism of Mussolini that Hitler definitely engaged in, but again, not as genocidal as Trump had been the previous few weeks. However, what we did not know yet during our weekend fascism roundup last Monday was that 36 hours earlier, President Trump had ordered armed federal shock troops to invade and occupy the city of Portland, Oregon, a city that had experienced protests in the wake of the police murder of George Floyd. Those protests were dying down, and as Mayor Tom Wheeler said this weekend, were likely to end soon. That's when Trump sent in the troops, instantly provoking more violence, as former Department of Homeland Security officials had warned it would. Trump did not ask for the city's or state's permission. In fact, they both want the troops to leave, and now, and they refuse and won't. Meanwhile, Republicans everywhere are commending Trump for not imposing a top-down federal policy when it comes to a coronavirus pandemic response, but a top-down federal policy to use violence to crush dissent? That's the kind of big government move Republicans can stand behind. Very far behind. Behind a wall of armed, unidentified camo wearing sacks of testosterone that look far too much like the quarantine protesters who occupied state capitals back in March. And in the first few hours of the shock troops' arrival in Portland, that was a real concern for protesters because far-right white supremacists have regularly showed up in nearly the same get-ups at counter-protests for the last several years in Portland, even violently breaking up constitutionally protected assemblies, uh, with some help from the police. When rumors and stories started spreading of camoed alleged soldiers taking protesters off the streets, far from protest areas, far from the federal property the soldiers were meant to protect, abducting protesters off the street at gunpoint, with duct tape covering their agency affiliation across the back of their jackets, refusing to identify who they are or who they work with, and forcing that protester into an unmarked car, a car it's later to, is determined to be a, a rental, a freaking rental. Portlanders started freaking out. They took the detainees to, they covered the detainees' eyes so they didn't know where they were going when driving around in circles in Portland. They eventually took them to an undisclosed building, read them their Miranda rights without charging them with any crime, told them that they would be easy on them if they would just ask a few questions without an attorney present. Yeah, that's the kind of scary stuff that was going on in Portland last weekend. When word leaked out via videos posted on Twitter last Monday, it became apparent that Trump had turned his Hitlermatic 2020 up to 11, if not 12. 
The plan seems simple enough, with win the election by getting a propaganda machine to whip up the base just like it did in 2016, because face it, Trump is not going to get any new voters, any Hillary voters, any Bernie voters to, you know, actually vote for him, so all he has to has left is his base. What he has used to great effect against that constituency is fear. The more afraid he can make white people of losing their privilege, the more scared he can make old people that young people are destroying America, the more filled with fear he can get them to be believing roaming mobs of blacks or anarchists or black anarchists, whatever it takes, are coming to their small towns to loot and burn them to the ground. The more Trump and his surrogates can get people to believe in that utter fiction created by imagination geared toward doing whatever it takes to win an election, the greater chance he has of another four years in office. This current fear is, the current fear, I should say, is anarchists and agitators, despite white supremacists being busted in Indiana for attempting a lynching, despite approximately 70 incidents of white supremacists driving their cars into crowds that are engaging in constitutionally protected free speech and assembly, despite the vast increase in police violence during the protests against police violence, President Trump says it's all anarchists and agitators. Don't get me wrong, liberals don't like anarchists either. Yesterday on CNN's horrible media criticism show, which I will not name, hosted by someone I will not mention, because I do not want any of you to ever watch that horrible show ever, and hell if I'm going to do anything to promote it. The host of the show started their coverage of the Portland insurgency by unidentified federal troops with admitting, yes, there are anarchists, and yes, anarchists are a problem. Well, thanks for partially legitimizing the armed violence that is being perpetuated, uh, perpetrated by unidentified federal troops, including the shooting of a protester in the head by a rubber bullet, a shot that was taken through an arrow slit in the federal courthouse. The city is asking for an investigation, an immediate investigation, but none is really ex expected. So while all of the violence against the citizens of Portland... So, I'm sorry. So why all of the violence against the citizens of Portland? Department of Homeland Security officials explained the reaction by showing what protesters had done to federal buildings the troops were sw sworn to protect. Graffiti. Yep, President Trump now sends in armed, unidentified shock troops into cities that have graffiti, a form of speech, on federal buildings. Would you like shock troops in your town? Go spray paint an anarchy on the nearest federal facility, and they'll be rolling in like oranges. Go spray paint one on the post office. Why not? By the way... Rolling in like oranges is a phrase used by President Reagan, another Republican, when he was stoking fear of hordes crossing the U.S.-Mexican border back in the 80s so he could get reelected. President Trump told reporters last week before they were reporting on the ongoing violence in Portland, which was all over social media but had yet to make it to the establishment mainstream news media outlets, that his administration was trying something in Portland that you will be seeing in other cities, he said, and that an announcement will be made sometime this week. But Trump wasn't saying that whatever it was, and it turns out it's sending in federal troops to invade and occupy an American city, whether that city or state wants them or not, a real victory for the Republican mantra of local control, control if you've ever heard one, that his Portland plan would be rolled out in cities that continued with Black Lives Matter's actions. So, no, he wasn't referring to just Black Lives Matter protests. He was referring to the increased criminal violence, particularly here in Chicago. 
The president was threatening cities that if you do not crack down on your citizenry with more and more force, then President Trump would send in his thugs to do so. The military attack on civilians and their rights will make Trump look tough to his small pianist cohort and will likely cause more violence, which is what Trump wants more than anything. More violence. And count on Trump and his party and their white supremacist supporters to commit a lot more violence between now and Election Day. And if Trump is not reelected, expect a lot more violence between Election Day and, well, forever. Forever, as in the memo from the acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, Security, which reads, moving forward, if this type of armed response is going to be the norm, specialized training and standardized equipment should be deployed to responding agencies. The new normal we are finding out is the new norm of federal troops invading, walking down American streets, looking for those committing dissent. The upside is, if there is any, this might help my Q rating. If shock troops do come to Chicago and they arrest me, who knows how many new Patreon subscribers we can get. Meanwhile, the Democratic Party runs Joe Biden von Hindenburg as the stopgap to what looks like the inevitable fascism in the United States. Yep, no doubt about it. This is hell coming up after centuries of broken legal promises from the United States. Native peoples may finally be getting some form of justice. We'll also have Rotten History and tell you the rest of this week's guests live from late capitalism, where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy. This is hell in an historic decision. The Supreme Court of the United States finally adhered to a treaty agreement made over 150 years ago that takes control of eastern Oklahoma away from the state and gives it to the Muscogee Creek and Seminole peoples, returning to tell us what this means for all Native Americans and the entire United States. Writer Julian Brave Noisecat is the author of the Atlantic article, The McGirt Case is a Historic Win for Tribes for Federal Indian Law, this might be the Gorsuch Court. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Julian. Thanks so much for having me back on. This is Julian's second appearance here on This Is Hell. He was on three years ago, back in July of 2017, when we talked to him about an article he wrote for the Marshall Project. Law enforcement is still used as a colonial tool in Indian country, which I definitely want to get back to just for a couple of minutes at some point in our conversation. And uh, your Guardian piece at the time, Indigenous Sovereignty is on the Rise. Can it shape the course of history? You can find out more about Julian at julianbravenoisecat.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at jnoisecat. You write how a friend of yours sweetmates from college where you were both members of the Native American student group could not sleep the night before the Supreme Court decision on uh, the Native Treats Rights case, McGirt versus Oklahoma. As SCOTUS blog described the decision, the court held land in northeastern Oklahoma reserved for the Creek Nation since the 19th century remains a reservation for the purpose of a federal statute that gives the federal government exclusive jurisdiction to try certain major crimes committed by any Indian in the Indian country. The court's holding means that state courts in Oklahoma had no jurisdiction to convict petitioner Jimmy McGirt, who is an enrolled member of the Seminole Nation of Oklahoma, of three serious sexual offenses that took place on the reservation. Your friend was awaiting this decision. Meanwhile, this seems to have caught white mainstream media by surprise. Why is it so important to Native Americans to reaffirm 
their reservation rights? What do they get out of reaffirming reservation rights that they do not have otherwise? So there's a lot there, um, and I'm sure it was it's probably hard for it was hard for the media to wrap their their heads around uh, the McGirt case. Uh, so I'll try to break it down a little bit more um, because truthfully, you know, even though I cover and and write about these issues, um, you know, it wasn't the simplest uh, court decision for me myself to write about. So basically, um, the way that jurisdiction works in Indian country uh, is that um, tribes have jurisdiction, criminal jurisdiction in their own uh, courts and legal systems over almost all minor offenses involving native people. But major crimes, uh, as defined under the the Major Crimes Act, things like uh, homicide, manslaughter, uh, kidnapping, et cetera, um, fall to the federal government. So the federal law enforcement like the FBI. Um, And so this leads to a complicated set of jurisdictional questions about if a native or non-native person commits um, an alleged crime on uh, an Indian reservation or on Indian land, uh, land that was promised to tribes in one of the 370 treaties uh, or other agreements that were signed by Congress about which uh, law enforcement agency and uh, prosecutor has authority over that case. And so the Jim C. McGirt um, case originated with a seminal man, as you said, uh, who committed um, quite horrible sexual offenses, to be completely honest. Um, But he was contending in court that actually the state of Oklahoma did not have uh, the jurisdiction to prosecute his case, that because his case, he committed his crimes on land that was considered part of the historic uh, Muscogee Creek Nation, so lands that were promised to that tribe in an 1866 treaty uh, that was negotiated after they were sent on the Trail of Tears from their historic homelands in what is now Alabama, essentially, um, that it was actually tribal lands and that therefore it was the federal government who was supposed to prosecute his case. And so because it involved the Muscogee Creek uh, Nation's treaty rights and actually the treaty rights of all five uh, tribes that were relocated on the Trail of Tears to what is now Eastern Oklahoma, so that's the Cherokee, uh, the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, uh, the Seminole, and the Creek, the Muscogee Creek, um, that the tribe got involved with the case because it had major implications for their treaty lands and, and treaty rights. Um, and so the reason this case uh, was so important was that it actually was getting at this question of whether a large swath of eastern Oklahoma, actually 47% of the state, uh, an area um, of millions of acres uh, that that is actually home to 1.8 million people, including a large portion of the city of Tulsa, was actually still Indian land, was still treaty land, was still uh, legally speaking sort of reservation land, and whether therefore it was the tribe and the federal government that held jurisdiction. Uh, And in a very sort of... um, important, maybe the most important uh, Supreme Court case concerning treaty rights and tribes in the 21st century, the court ruled in a 5-4 decision 
that it was, in fact, still Muscogee Creek Treaty lands, that there was no act of Congress uh, extinguishing the tribe's treaty rights to those lands. And therefore, uh, the state did not have jurisdiction to prosecute Jim Seymour Group's case and that it needs to be retried in uh, federal court. And so as a writer, um, you know, I am not of one of the five. I am, I am indigenous. I'm, I'm First Nations. Uh, but I'm not from one of the five, uh, one of the five tribes whose, um, you know, whose jurisdiction and treaty rights and sovereignty were most implicated by this case. So I actually thought of um, my friend Mary, who you brought up in in your sort of introduction. My friend Mary Halpata, who uh, happens to actually have just graduated from Columbia Law School. Uh, she's actually a descendant of the Muscogee Creek, uh, a member of the Chickasaw, and also a descendant of the Seminole. So all of her tribes are impacted by this decision. Um, and I called her to get, you know, her thoughts. She's someone who, uh, because of the history of injustice, because of the history of, as I said, over 370 treaties signed with Native nations, every single one of which has been broken by Congress in the United States. Uh, you know, she decided, like so many other Native people do, to become a lawyer, and she's actually about to take the bar, so good luck to Mary on the bar. Um, you know, to pursue that kind of a career, to to become part of the community uh, and vanguard of of Native people who are who are fighting for our treaty rights and our justice in the United States. Um, and I called her because I wanted to know, like, what it was like for someone to, you know, who's going into the legal profession, who's about to become a lawyer, who actually did some of the amicus briefs for a very similar treaty rights case that was seen before the Supreme Court uh, last term. Um, and whose people were part of the, the, the folks who were sent on the Trail of Tears to Oklahoma, what it would mean for someone like that um, to, you know, see this decision happen. Uh, and she told me that, you know, she was having trouble sleeping the night before, um, but that, you know, the decision to uphold her tribes and her people's treaty rights uh, was incredibly affirming, that it, it, it would allow her to tell people now where she actually comes from, because up until this point, uh, she had a real hard time, you know, explaining to people like, oh, you know, I'm from Indian land, but it's not really Indian land anymore. And it's unclear. But now she can, you know, full throatedly say, you know, I come from um, I come from Indian territory in Oklahoma. And that is that is what the law says as well. And this was a decision, again, that is about jurisdiction. It isn't about the heinous crime that Jim C. McGirt committed, but I can see how that crime could have been a distraction by those who did not want the court to decide positively on McGirt versus Oklahoma. So, and I, I definitely don't want to get into a distraction about whatever his particular crime was, but are Native courts any more just or fair for Native Americans than the state's courts would be? Or from a white perspective, do they think that Native courts are too easy on Native Americans? So this this question gets at a, a really key point that was contended by the state, which is that, so firstly, um, you know, the uh, Ted Cruz, tweeted out after the decision that the Supreme Court just gave away half of Oklahoma to, to tribes. And so there is this, uh, there's this real um, prevalent fear, I would say, among uh, particularly folks on the American right, and one that was actually sort of uh, attempted to be weaponized by the state of Oklahoma and their arguments before the Supreme Court, which is that 
how could we possibly uh, recognize the rights of tribes? How could we possibly uh, affirm that they have jurisdiction here? You know, if we do that, the sky is going to fall. They are going to unjustly uproot us from this land. Uh, They are going to suddenly, you know, subject us to, um, you know, their their courts and and uh, they're not going to pay taxes to the state government. And uh, all of these people who were, uh, you know, convicted by the state of Oklahoma, who are native people whose cases actually occurred on what is now considered Indian land are going to be set free. There's a there's a whole element of this that that quite honestly the argument sounds a lot like the plot of like a Jordan Peele film, right? Like, uh, oh my God, the the Indians are gonna rise up against us and they're gonna do exactly what we did to them, which is they're gonna send us on our own little white trail of tears out of Oklahoma. Um, and this was in fact to a large extent the argument leveraged by the state of Oklahoma, uh, which is you know, quite ironic, right? Like the the conservative argument in front of the Supreme Court is almost always that the text of the law, the text of, in this case, the treaties, needs to be, and and also of the statutes and and the acts made by Congress, need to be read and interpreted the way that they were originally written. But in this case, the state of Oklahoma and the opposition to uh, the Muscogee Creek's petition and, and claim and treaty rights uh, was one of policy consequences, essentially. This notion that, uh, you know, again, like the, how can these tribes who, you know, uh, I think we can attach onto this some, some sort of um, racial bias, you know, tribes who, you know, uh, probably don't have as much, according to this line of thinking, you know, as much sophistication in their, in their courts, who don't have uh, the same sort of standards of civil procedure, uh, as as non-native governments do, you know, how could they possibly still retain the rights to this land and and their jurisdiction? Um, and ironically enough, actually, the reading of the treaty law and the acts of Congress and, and the statute that actually gets you the McGirt decision is a textualist reading of the law, right? It's it's actually the the majority of the the court opinion is written by a Donald Trump appointee, Neil Gorsuch, who, um, you know, I, I, ironically enough, says that we need to read the treaties as they are written. We need to read the acts of Congress as they are written. Uh, so it doesn't matter if for decades Congress in the state of Oklahoma have acted like this treaty is dead letter. Uh, if they have never actually extinguished the treaty rights, the treaty rights are still in effect. Uh, and so therefore, uh, a reading of the law that is actually also marshaled against um, abortion and against gay marriage actually in this case uh, gets you one of the uh, most impactful and enduring Indian law cases in history. And in a line that actually opened the majority opinion, um, Gorsuch wrote something that I think is probably going to be cited now, and Indian attorneys have told me is going to be cited now for, for years and maybe decades to come. And he said, quote, on the far end of the Trail of Tears was a promise. Um, and essentially what, what he went on to write in a long and, and quite eloquent opinion uh, and, and beautifully worded opinion, actually, uh, was that that promise uh, is still the, the supreme law of the land as treaties are described in the Constitution. So yeah. it's, uh, it's an interesting irony of readings and arguments against that actually gets you uh, uh, historic Native rights uh, decision 
in the moment where we're in uh, historic national reckoning on race and, you know, who could have predicted that it was a Trump appointee who was actually going to, um, you know, uphold the treaties as they're written. And as you quote Gorsuch writing, he continues today, we are asked whether the land those treaties promised remains an Indian reservation for purposes of federal criminal law, because Congress has not said otherwise, we hold the government to its word. Why now? Do you think something has changed either legally or structurally or culturally or politically? Why do you think this is happening now? This treaty was signed in 1866. We've had over 155 years, 154 years to actually address the situation. Why now? That's a really hard question. And so I'll, I'll say that I'm not completely sure why the strange sort of alchemy of history has aligned in the way that it has. Um, except to say that it has. So I think that, you know, firstly, um, I think that Gorsuch is an interesting uh, character here. You know, him and I probably differ on uh, almost every single political position that there is to be taken in United States politics. Um, but it just so happens that, again, like what Native people have been saying since the treaties were signed is that you know, the original text and intent of these treaties needs to be upheld today. And if we did that, things would be quite different in this country, particularly with respect to its first peoples. Um, and, you know, uh, I don't think that a textualist reading is is favorable to uh, civil rights and, and human rights in most instances. But when it comes to treaty rights, uh, strangely enough, it, it is actually a favorable way for, to read the law uh, for tribes. And um, and I would also say for everybody, actually, because those those treaties are um, everyone's treaties. They're not just tribes treaties. They're they're signed by the United States government and tribal peoples. Um, so I think that that's one part of the story. Um, and, you know, there, there are different elements of Gorsuch's sort of biography that people highlight here. You know, he actually happens to have worked in the American West and was. Um, you know, uh, compared to the average Supreme Court justice, actually more aware of of Native uh, rights and, and uh, you know, Indian law, federal Indian law, uh, which, you know, I think is notable. There's, there's a lot of people who can ascend to uh, the highest court in all the land, including, you know, liberals who can ascend to the highest court in all the land and not know uh, the first thing about federal Indian law. And this has actually, uh, you know, happened with some of the big sort of liberal um, stalwarts like RBG who have sometimes ruled not in tribes favor. So I think that's part of it. I think that a second part of it is that, and this is a little bit, you know, more ephemeral and, and more related to sort of the zeitgeist, but I think that, you know, there is a new generation of native attorneys, activists, leaders uh, who, you know, are essentially, I would say, like the Standing Rock generation. Uh, you know, there's there's a generation of Native people who have gone off, have have gotten educated, uh, maybe haven't gotten educated, but you know, have been raised in uh, community in a time where we are proud of who we are after generations of being gaslit, of our lands being taken away, our children being sent off to assimilationist Christian boarding schools. Um, you know, we are now full-throatedly proud of, of who we are, of who our people are. We're learning our languages. We're maintaining our cultures, despite uh, the fact that they were 
um, outlawed in many instances, and now are, you know, really participating in movements for uh, justice and rights for our people and, and often for, for all people. You know, the Standing Rock movement was not just about the treaty rights uh, and concerns of the Standing Rock tribe, but also of the concerns of everybody uh, living downstream of, of that pipeline and also everybody, uh, you know, who would be impacted by its, its harm done to the climate. Uh, and I think that um, in the broadest sense, uh, the sort of emergence of this very vocal, uh, very politically and legally savvy activist generation of Native people um, is also a huge part of this, this story. So people like Mary, honestly. So you're, and I'm going to quote her right now. In fact, uh, you were mentioning how there were these fears of it turning into, like you were saying, some sort of Jordan Peele flick. But but why no vengeance? Or will there be some kind of reckoning? Because you quote Mary Hobalta uh, saying of the fear-mongering, it helped remind me that Native people and advocates on behalf of tribes and other Native interests have a lot to do in the realm of educating others. What do others not understand about Native rights when they fear they can be and will be wielded as weapons of vengeance against them or their property? What does it say to you about those who do see Native rights movements as nothing more than vengeance for colonialism? Well, I would first say that um, we don't have great public opinion research on attitudes towards Native people. That's partially because we don't have very many polling operations that are good at uh, measuring the opinions of Native people or opinions about Native people. Um, but I, based upon what I've seen, would, would, would tend to believe that, thankfully, the number of people who have strong opinions about Native people that are negative are a small minority of the electorate. Um, you know, firstly, Native people are largely invisible. So, um, you know, there's large, large drawbacks to that, obviously, which is that most people don't even know about treaties. Most people don't know that we, um, many people don't know that we still exist. Um, you know, most people couldn't tell you the first thing about, you know, the contemporary lives of Native people. Um, most people probably don't know any Native people themselves. Uh, and that is a huge problem. But there is another side to that, which is that um, that means also that a lot of people actually just don't have strong opinions about Native people. Um, so while they might be uninformed, I think that the argument that was espoused by the state of Oklahoma um, is a fairly marginal minority view in the broader United States. It might be shared by many people in Oklahoma and other states with significant Native populations where these issues are more politicized. Um, but overall, I think that, uh, you know, there's still a lot of opportunity to educate people about, um, you know, treaty rights. I think there's a way to do this, uh, that if Gorsuch is an example, uh, that actually doesn't polarize these, the, the views of, of treaties too much. So I think that actually, um, if we, if, if native advocates and people play the, the cards, right, there's actually a way in which you could, uh, foresee, you know, treaty rights being, um, something that could be embraced on both sides of the aisle, which is, you know, very similar, sort of play that was used by folks who in the feminist movement, women's movement, who uh, were pushing the, the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, um, back in the, the 70s and 80s. Um, and so, you know, I think that Mary's right in that there's 
uh, a lot of ignorance and a lot of uh, a, a dire need to educate people about these issues. Um, but, you know, I think that there's a, another side to that, which is that um, there isn't sort of the polarized, um, widespread public opinion against Native people in the same way that you might see about, um, you know, today, like Muslims and, and immigrants from south of the border and, and those sorts of things. Um, and I'll caveat that by saying that, like, there are definitely parts of the country where there is widespread anti-Indian racism. I don't want to downplay that, uh, particularly in, in large parts of, of the West. You know, I have experienced that racism personally. Um, but overall, you know, I think that there's a way in which, um, you know, if people just paid more attention and we got more media uh, focused on these issues, more people might know about them. And I think that the, the opinion overall on net uh, would probably and, and hopefully sort of break in favor of tribes, but people just don't know. And if you're lucky enough, as I am here in Chicago, we're able to get Indian Country News, uh, which is broadcast twice daily here on public TV, and people should look it up in their menus or look it up online in any way because it really is a great way to just see a different perspective on the news. Um, one of the things that you have, or one of the things that you mentioned maybe earlier, and I just want to make sure that people understand this: why, why does, why do Native people, why would they rather have the federal government and not the state of Oklahoma oversee? their justice system. I just want to make sure people understand the injustice they get from the state that they might be able to circumvent or overcome by having federal jurisdiction. Well, I guess I would first say that um, it's not like tribes are begging the feds to, to uh, you know, come to Indian country and, and uh, you know, police us. Uh, I think ideally many tribes um, you know, would love to have full jurisdiction over all things regarding, uh, you know, our lands, our rights, our sovereignty. Uh, that is what like a full definition of self-determination and sovereignty would look like. And I think that is still the aspiration for many people. I think that there's, um, there are, there's tensions uh, between states and tribal governments uh, across the country. It's often, uh, there's often sort of a, a contest between um, states and tribes, wherein states are often uh, sort of trying to sort of sink their teeth into and take away some of the sort of um, sort of jurisdiction and uh, sovereignty and space that tribes have to operate within. Um, you know, if any of your listeners have paid attention to uh, some of the debates around uh, Indian gaming, which is one of the only viable businesses and sources of revenue on on many reservations, and is actually only there's only a very small minority of gaming operations that are actually profitable in any sort of meaningful way. Um, you know, this is a very prominent example of those tensions. Uh, you know, the states where there are tribes that are participating in gaming uh, often are. Uh, often can be quite sort of pushy in uh, trying to sort of infringe upon uh, tribes' ability to do, uh, you know, what they want to do in order to pay for schools and education and, um, you know, roads and all that sort of stuff on their lands. Um, and then with respect to, with respect to criminal jurisdiction, uh, there is, uh, a line of argument that I mostly agree with, but also have some reservations about, um, because I'm I have deep sort of skepticism of law enforcement and policing, that essentially goes like this. Uh, so 
Native women are far more likely, I should know, I should know the statistic by now, but I don't have it memorized. Uh, but essentially Native women are far more likely uh, to experience sexual violence in their lifetime uh, than uh, any other sort of demographic in the United States. And because of the overlapping and complicated jurisdictional issues in Indian country, um, there is a serious sort of loophole wherein uh, for, for years now, uh, predators have been able, non-native predators have been able to come onto reservation lands where you already often have a quite vulnerable um, population for a number of historic reasons uh, and ongoing reasons and been able to commit um, offenses uh, against Native women that then often because uh, the tribe does not have jurisdiction over non-Native people on their lands and because, uh, you know, the federal government is not always the most attentive to Native people, uh, go unpoliced uh, and often unpunished. And so uh, for that reason uh, and for, for, for some others, uh, you know, tribes would like more attention paid to, uh, you know, the sort of enforcement of safety, essentially the enforcement of what everybody should be able to take for granted, which is like, you know, their own personal protection from uh, violence on, on their lands. And often that means that because, as I was saying at the beginning of this episode, they don't have jurisdiction over major crimes, uh, that often means that they, they need the federal government to be um, an active partner in in that law enforcement and prosecution and and unfortunately the federal government uh, has not really been that and the result is that uh, there is a phenomenon uh, that has not been quantified particularly well but is is quite widespread of uh, indigenous women uh, queer and two-spirit people uh, turning up missing and, and actually becoming and getting murdered in Indian country um, so there's there's real need for um, these issues to be to be settled. And, you know, I think that the hope is that uh, clarifying the treaty rights of five major tribes in Oklahoma uh, and then hopefully other tribes across the country uh, can also help in addressing that broader issue. And I'm just kind of concerned that the moneyed interests, the financial interests, big oil are going to try to circumvent McGirtz versus Oklahoma in some way, as the environmental writer Aline Brown, uh, who wrote at The Intercept last week, going back to the original treaty text would make broad swaths of the nation native territory. That means indigenous people would have a stronger voice on environmental enforcement, more of a say on fossil fuel infrastructure con construction, would be able to better control the fate of native children removed from their parents' home and less likely to be tried in local courts, where district attorneys are elected using racist, tough-on-crime politics. Beyond control over the land itself, the treaties lay the groundwork of obligations requiring the federal government to provide adequate resources to support health care, safety, and education, which have never been fulfilled. Does this necessarily mean that the United States as a whole that the United States fossil fuel policy, that the United States energy policy is going to be directly affected by McGirt versus Oklahoma, that we might see more of a pro-environmental policy coming out of Washington, or is this just a possibility of Native Americans wanting to see more oil being drilled because of the desperation and the economic problems that happen on reservations? 
So I'm going to split hairs just a little bit here. Um, and also because I'm not an attorney, so I just want to hedge a little bit. <laughs> yeah, right. But so my, my understanding, um, having talked to a number of, um, you know, experts and attorneys on this issue is that the McGirt decision specifically in terms of its application uh, will have implications for those five, those five tribes that I named. Um, but that this new um, sort of alignment of the Supreme Court, one where, uh, you know, it's possible to get a 5-4 decision in favor of tribes. So essentially, if, if you follow sort of the, the argument that I make in the Atlantic case, the fact that on federal Indian law, this might be the, the, the Gorsuch court. Um, and that specifically, I think, does mean that tribes more so than in many decades past uh, can count on getting a fair day in court, which I think uh, if you game this out it, over the decades that uh, we can expect, you know, Gorsuch and, um, you know, other sort of members of this court to be to be there. Uh, bodes quite well for for treaty rights and 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 questions related to tribal rights more generally. Um, you know, I think that that is a real piece of of leverage uh, that tribes now have, uh, which essentially just amounts to you know people actually reading the treaties and like you know paying attention to what they what they really say. Um, and I think that that could have uh, quite wide ranging consequences, uh, and that. You know, if you've got a more favorable administration in place, um, you know, there could also be ways in which, um, you know, uh, uh, an administration could pay more attention to, uh, you know, with respect to sort of questions of energy and, and siting and, um, you know, pipelines and all that sort of stuff uh, could create a more rigorous standard for treaty rights and tribal consent uh, in the construction of uh, pipeline projects, for example, or, you know, a broad array of other sorts of um, economic developments that, you know, that impact uh, tribal lands. Um, you know, whether all tribes are going to leverage that in a pro-environmental uh, and more progressive direction, I think is uh, probably unlikely. You know, there's a diversity of views in Indian country. Obviously, Indian country is uh, significantly left of the median, you know, United States sort of community. But, um, you know, there are there are certainly tribes that participate in uh, oil and gas extraction. Um, but on net, I think that 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 will bode very well for environmental outcomes um, and for, you know, the well-being of, of communities, um, that aren't just native communities that are, that are everyone's communities. So I think it's, it's a quite positive development. Um, but, you know, these things change uh, very slowly. And, uh, you know, as Mary told me, and as I would tend to agree, um, you know, it's not like suddenly tribes are, are waking up now and being like, Oh, you know, the Supreme court, the United States government, those are my best friends. Um, you know, there's, there's still a lot of uh, skepticism and I think a healthy amount of um, not cynicism, but uh, a healthy amount of um, sort of antagonism still directed towards uh, a government, a Congress, you know, a Supreme Court uh, that has for the vast majority of its history um, primarily broken rather than uh, rather than followed the treaties.
And that law can definitely defend Native Americans' rights, and you point out how so many are going into, activists are so many are going into studying law like Mary has, and you write that Mary Halbada can trace her own family story to the far end of the Trail of Tears, and you point out how she still, her family still has land, 180 acres that were given to them following the Trail of Tears, following with this treaty in eastern Oklahoma back in 1866, and you quote Mary saying that we might have many other resources, but we do have that land. Our ancestors worked very hard to get that land, and that was the promise on the other side that we should keep with us for time immemorial. That's part of why this opinion is so important on a personal level. How are Mary's family lands now more protected with this decision, now more likely to stay in the family? I just want to drive home this point about why this decision is so important, even on the direct impact of individual lives. Yeah, so I mean, um, the sort of contours of what this will mean for other areas of uh, tribal rights and jurisdiction uh, beyond criminal justice are going to be negotiated between uh, the tribes, uh, the state of Oklahoma, and then also primarily the Oklahoma congressional delegation, um, and then also among sort of local jurisdictions. Uh, but one of the, the, ma- the main outcomes of this uh, is that it will actually be easier now for the Muscogee Creek and some of the other five tribes to bring their land back into trust. Uh, so essentially, um, in the broadest swaths, the United States government's policy towards Indian land uh, since the founding of this nation has been to try to take as much of it away as possible. Um, there was, after the treaty period, beginning in the late 1800s, uh, an act of Congress called the Dawes Act, uh, which essentially tried to break up Indian lands and effectively did break up many tribal lands and then give them to individual tribal citizens with the idea being that if they converted to Christianity and they became farmers, uh, you know, then they, and they owned their own plot of land, then they would assimilate. And also over a long period of time, if the land was broken up and held by individual tribal citizens, it could be then alienated and sort of the communal life of the tribe because the, the tribe's land base would be eroded Uh, would also sort of fall away. Um, And so Mary's family um, was impacted by the Dawes Act. They have an allotment, as many tribes in Oklahoma and across the country do. Um, But, you know, uh, uh, contrary to the United States um, sort of intention for them to even have that allotment, you know, Mary's family has always held that they need to protect that land, that that land was what they were promised for, you know, departing on the Trail of Tears. It is their land. It is supposed to be their land in time immemorial. And they're going to hang on to that. And luckily, um, you know, one of the likely sort of consequences of the McGirt case is that it's actually going to be easier for the Muscogee Creek and the four other tribes uh, to um, protect their land. And then also to, if they're, they're interested, for example, in um, reclaiming, Uh, a a plot of land and bringing it back into trust, bringing it back into the tribe's land base, it's going to be much easier for them to do that uh, than it would have been before this decision. Um, So, you know, uh, for a lot of Native people, what makes us Indigenous, of course, is our primary connection to this land, the fact that we are the first peoples of this land, that we trace our connection to the land, either to, um, you know, the sort of creation stories that we have maintained uh, or to 
you know, the diaspora or the relocation of our peoples after, you know, colonialism, which is the case with the, the five tribes in Oklahoma. Um, and, you know, because it, it is what our ancestors often fought and, and died for and kept for us uh, up until the present, um, you know, that is, that is a very important and powerful uh, thing to us. And, you know, uh, this, this case means that, that, that uh, for these five tribes and hopefully soon for many others, it'll be easier to protect that land that it might even be possible to bring uh, more lands into uh, the tribal land base. Hey, and just, that's our land, of course. Yeah. And it just reminds me of just how much the United States is, the, the history of the United States, the whole, uh, the United States seems to be founded on broken promise after broken promise, great ideals that are then never really implemented. And it's really, it, it's, I'm not saying the United States system is any way perfect, but it's just amazing how often broken promises seem to be at the heart of so many of our problem, problems. And I want to ask you one last question that's kind of related to that. We've been speaking with writer Julian Brave Noisecat, author of the Atlantic article, The McGirt Case is a Historic Win for Tribes for Federal Indian Law. This might be the Gorsuch Court. Julian is a member of the Sakwapemk and the Statimich Nations, is the vice president of Policy and Strategy at Data for Progress, a multidisciplinary group of experts using state-of-the-art techniques and data science to support progressive activists and causes. You can find out more about that group at dataforprogress.org. He's also a member of the NDN Collective, an indigenous-led organization dedicated to building indigenous power. You can find out more about NDN Collective at ndncollective.org. And you can find out more about Julian at Julian Brave Noisecat and follow Julian on Twitter at jnoisecat. This is Julian's second appearance on This Is Hell, and this is where our next question resides. So our final question for all of our guests, Julian, as always, is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. I don't really know how hellish this question is, but the last time you were on our show back in July of 2017, one of the articles we talked about was a piece you had written for the Marshall Project called Law Enforcement is Still Used as a Colonial Tool in Indian Country. How might McGirt versus Oklahoma change law enforcement from being used as a colonial tool in Indian Country? How might this decision affect police-native relations in Indian Country? Whew, that's a big question. Um, you know, I'll hedge a little bit. I guess I'll, I'll say that firstly, uh, data from the CDC um, suggests that Native people uh, are per capita the most likely to be killed by law enforcement, um, which to me means that it's essential for Native people to stand beside our Black relatives um, in the movement for Black Lives Matter, uh, also to defund and, and eventually abolish the police. Um, you know, what this means for policing on Indian country, in Indian country, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I think that a lot of the um, tensions will still exist between Native people and uh, states and also between Native people and law enforcement. Um, you know, what I think this decision might amount to is that, uh, or I know what the, that this decision will amount to, is that now tribes have a little bit more leverage in their negotiations between, uh, you know, Congress, uh, you know, this, 
the state of Oklahoma and also local jurisdictions um, about issues related to law enforcement and policing. Um, and my, you know, my assumptions around this sort of thing is that um, while that will not eliminate the problem, giving tribes more leverage in those kinds of negotiations, negotiations that really shape the contours of tribal jurisdiction and sovereignty will, uh, in my view, likely uh, lead to uh, less sort of colonial relationships and, um, you know, less sort of uh, harmful policing of Native communities, but that it won't eliminate those problems. They will, they will persist. Um, so I'm a little hopeful, but uh, at the same time, you know, my view of, of most of these struggles is that they're, uh, they end up being primarily incremental and, and long and you have to fight for every single inch. And, you know, I think tribes know that better than uh, as well as anyone else in, in this country. Julian, thanks so much for being back on our show. This has been a fantastic conversation, just like the one we had three years ago. And I promise you, it's not going to be three years before we have you on again. I hope it's more like three or six months. I really appreciate you being on the show. This is fantastic writing. And thank you so much for being back on our show. Again, you can hear our other interview with Julian from July 2017 by just searching on his name at our website, thisishell.com. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. On July 24th, 1915, 105 years ago this Friday, more than 2,500 people boarded the SS Eastland, a Great Lakes passenger ship docked on the Chicago River in the city's bustling downtown area. If you are not from Chicago and not aware of the story, it's not only rotten, it's tragic. The passengers were mainly employees of the Western Electric Company and their families bound for a company picnic in nearby Michigan City, Indiana, at the southern end of Lake Michigan. Many of the workers were recent Czech immigrants, and since Western Electric did not offer paid vacation time, the company picnic was a big deal and the mood was festive. So no paid vacation, you ungrateful migrants. Now thank us for the boat ride and a picnic, and don't forget to bring your own goddamn food. But the Eastland had undergone speed-enhancing modifications 12 years earlier, and since then it had experienced problems with its stability and several frightening incidents, and nothing says vacation like unsafe travel accommodations. The addition of extra lifeboats mandated after the disaster of the ocean-going Titanic three years earlier only exacerbated the problem by making the Eastland dangerously top-heavy. Because in response to disaster, we always overcompensate after the fact. And on this early morning, as hundreds of passengers headed for the upper deck to enjoy the view and the fresh air, crew members noticed that the ship was listing dangerously toward its port side. They tried to remedy the problem by opening ballast tanks in the ship's hull, but it was not enough. And then, with little warning, while still tied to the dock in just 20 feet of calm water, the Eastland rolled over onto its side. Hundreds of passengers were thrown into the cold Chicago River, and many hundreds more were trapped in the ship's hold, either drowned 
by incoming water or crushed to death by heavy furniture and other objects. A total of 844 passengers and four crew were killed in the most deadly disaster in Great Lakes history. Criminal indictments were soon issued for the ship's captain and engineer, along with four officers of the steamship company. But the cases were later dismissed for lack of sufficient evidence. And of course, Western Electric was not held accountable whatsoever, despite their unwillingness to give paid vacations, leading to the deaths of 848 people. Now that's rotten history, and this is hell. And in fact, if you go to Bohemia National Cemetery and you look for that date, you'll find it on tombstones all over the place here on Chicago's northwest side. There's lots of victims from the SS Eastland disaster there. And in fact, I think there's a memorial marker there. Alex, please tell us what's happening on the rest of this week's show. All right, tomorrow, I'm really looking forward to this. I got the book in my hand right now. Gerald Horn will be on to talk about his book, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, the Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. Also, on tomorrow's show, Alex will be revealing this week's question from Mel, and we will be reading some of your answers. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gaptooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. I want to thank Julian Brave Noisecat for being our guest today, Alex for producing. Thanks to Ronaldo for Rotten History, and special thanks to Theron Humiston and Richard Norwood again for all of their work behind the scenes. And Richard will be in here producing on Wednesday, so looking forward to seeing him for the first time in, I don't know, nine months? I don't Time is no longer important. We told you so. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.